Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. Okay, so before uh, I get into the sermon proper tonight, this is like a two-part teaching uh, this evening. I wanted to address the room. Like, literally, I want to address this room, not you guys as the room. Specifically, I wanna talk about why we are in the room. And before you say anything to us, before you catch me or Tessa or Susie in the hallway after the service to say, hey man, uh, the chairs, like the ones around you, make me feel funny. Before you catch us in the hallway and say something about the oil paintings of the old dead white men who have had some sort of philanthropic generosity to this place, before you catch us in the hallway to say something about that, we know, believe me, we know, Tessa's main pet peeve right as of now is the gold cherubim in the back by the fireplace that does not work, that's holding an an apricot or a peach, we're not sure what it is. I, I offered her to bring it up and just have it standing next to me, looking over uh, the words that were being proclaimed tonight, but she, she wasn't having that. In a church culture that really cares about ambiance and aesthetics, this room with all of the paintings and the mismatched sacred furniture, and believe me, it is sacred because we have already said some things about it and the conversations were nearly halted at the door. This room is certainly the antithesis of ambiance and Aesthetics, or perhaps if you look at it in a different way, it might be the antidote. Either way, it's an odd look, and hopefully as you guys came in here, you said this is a strange pick for TRP. Um, Having written this this morning, I've got to step away and say that maybe as we started singing and maybe as we felt a little bit of community that we have been missing over the last year or so, maybe you don't care anymore about aesthetics and ambiance, and I think that that might be a really good thing. But I do want to address why we're here in this room, and in order to do that, I have to tell you a story. Six and a half years ago, we planted a church, and over that time, we have seen the ebbs and flows of what the church has looked like from the very beginning to where we are here and now. Now, we outgrew our first space in two months, 
which if you were there, that you should know that's like an inside joke because we were really just in the formal living room of our friend's house. It was a couple blocks down the street. It's not really too hard to outgrow a formal living room. And it's not hard, hard to be thrown out of that formal living room when people realize, I don't know if I want 15 to 20 people in my home every week when I'm trying to, re, uh, to unwind and get ready for the work week. But it was two months into our tenure as a church when we were displaced, we found a new home. Uh, we found a, a new home down the street on the corner of Camden and South at the Lutheran Church where we were there for a few years. And we did legitimately outgrow this second space. It seats about 100 people or so. And our first week there, we had 20. And we felt dwarfed by this space as we occupied just the first couple of rows. But really, it was a perfect building for us to be in. And throughout this story, I just want to highlight a couple of things. In, in, a, in a church culture that seems to be at each other's throats, we have had generous people that have gone to bat for us. This Lutheran church that I'm talking about, they opened up their doors to us for $25 a week, just enough to pay the bills, they said, which if you get electric bills, you know that it might not even be enough to cover the bills. But this place, it was perfect. It was, uh, it was traditional. It was stained glass. It had a couple of rooms for our kids' services. It had a commercial kitchen. It had a very familiar fellowship hall feeling. If I'm talking to any people that grew up in like a, a white country church where on certain uh, Sundays you would go down and have a potluck meal and somebody would bring inevitably macaroni and cheese and succotash and a big ham that maybe somebody ate, but most people sort of didn't eat. I don't know if this is talking your language, the deviled eggs and all of those sorts of things. Like we would have these meals together and we would begin to, to dream about ourselves in situations like this. And for two years, this was our home. We grew there. We solidified some things there about who we were and what we wanted to be. We began to understand our mission there in this space. We gained some members there in in this space, but we reached a point where people began to come to the service and look through the glass uh, windows in the back and see that it was a bit full and walk back out the door, which prompted us to make a decision. It prompted us to move down the street to Asbury. And when we arrived there, we were probably averaging 100 people or so, and many of them were college students. In fact, Susie, one of our uh, pastoral-type leaders here at the church, when she first came, she looked around and she said, am I in a youth group? What, what is this? I feel too old. And as I've mentioned before, she was. She was one of, one of the elder statesmen and, or women at the time. Um, but for a while, we maintained this uh, large gathering. But I think it's fair to say that we weren't really equipped for growth when it happened to us. We had been through a lot um, personally. We had um, a leadership structure that was a bit of a mess. Our membership process was hit and miss. We were really young. I think about 75% of our attendance at the time was under the age of 25. We ran into some bad press. We did some things early on that were, um, I don't know, ill-advised, but we actually still do those. One of the first things we, we printed was a, a growler. I was working at a brewery at the time, and I thought, hey, let's print some growlers and have a nice little Jesus message on the back. And that 
didn't really go over too well. So then we started doing beer and hymns where we got together and we drank beer and we sang hymns. If there's a theme here, don't, <laughs> don't go too far with that. But we, we ran into some things that made people in the community scratch their heads and say, what's this church all about? People also um, had some questions about the things that we believed and the mission and the vision uh, that we were attempting to, to enact in the community. And as a result of that, the size and dynamic of our community, it shifted. In addition, if you have a bunch of college students in your community, inevitably the college students graduate, and when you live in Salisbury, nine out of 10 of them decide to go back over the bridge because that's where the family is and that's where the jobs are. And if they have a creative bone in their body, that's usually where they can flourish because the Eastern Shore isn't for everyone. Looking around the room there, there's a couple of outliers in our midst that have managed to put down roots here in Salisbury and man, I can't even begin to tell you folks how much I appreciate you for that. Uh, but some students with more tenuous connections to us, they've moved to different churches in between semesters. Young families had to chase jobs, again, for many of the similar reasons that college students go across the bridge. Young families go across the bridge for, for jobs or graduate school. And some people just decided to leave the church, maybe because each week the music looks different. It might be Tessa and I. It might be me and Tessa and Jared and Arthur and Josh and full band. It might be uh, you know different different looks. Some people maybe have left because I preach how I preach, which I mean I think is excellent <laughs> on, most, on most accounts. Um, but you know, there's a lot of depth and there's a lot of uh, weird words, whether they're Greek or Hebrew, that some people don't really catch a vision for. Some people have left because we're not the right size, because when you walk into this space, the new people that are here tonight, I'm sorry, we notice you. There, there's no hiding from this small group when, when you come in to this building. And for some people, that is, um, is too much. As an introvert, I can tell you, like, yeah. Absolutely, it's a lot. It takes a lot of courage for people to walk into a small building. Some people maybe have left because we weren't the right denomination. I've always thought that the most damning factor for us in terms of our growth is the fact that we are pretty progressive for the Eastern Shore. I have an example here uh, that I've written down. And I guess I'll read it to you. So yesterday, like I was, I was posting this podcast that I think is really fun to listen to. It's called The Bible for Normal People. And the latest episode was about David and the retelling of David's story in the Old Testament and how that doesn't necessarily always line up with the things that we heard in Sunday school. And we're having this discussion specifically surrounding David and Goliath and little known fact, we're not gonna talk about this tonight. So I don't wanna like destroy your views of, of the Bible, but little known fact, some scholars think that it was not David who killed Goliath, but a lesser known figure named Elhanan, as we learn about in 2 Samuel, that there's this tradition about him slaying a giant, and authors have reappropriated that story and applied it to David. We will come back to this. This is my plug for our summer sermon series. Carla, you were asking about this. We're calling it Adult VBS because we're going back to the stories of the Old Testament and rereading them, not just for, so that I can say it might not have happened exactly like you've heard, but so that we can unpack that however you read David and Goliath, the story is not meant to inspire you to be brave or to slay your giants. That's not what that story is about. 
If the application is, who are your giants, you might be going down the wrong road. But sometimes we talk about stuff like this, and sometimes people don't like it necessarily, and it doesn't land with where they are or inspire them to follow Jesus with more temerity. Somebody needs to look that up because I'm not 100% sure I used it right, okay? Um, But we're attempting to to follow after the risen Jesus in ways that that are deep. Whatever one thinks about the stuff on the periphery that I've just named, the music, the ambiance, the social media, and I will say the preaching as well because in the American church we have privileged this time as the time of the soul formation of individuals. And I want to push back against that so hard. If you're coming here to learn from me or from whoever is talking, we are in the wrong place. And if you're leaving here to go to hear someone else who who has a microphone or not and learn from them as the sole impetus of your spiritual formation, you are going about it in the wrong way and it trends on dangerous For us to nullify or for us to diminish the sacred meal of the bread and the cup, for us to diminish how that might be transformative for us or to diminish how we might be transformative for each other, I think it it, it leads in the wrong direction. But still, as it happens, some folks, they're looking for something, um, I have written here, something that's safe and inconspicuous, so they move on, and I don't mean to to paint it in in quite such a a negative brush. I do wanna say this, too, uh, for anyone that happens, this is gonna sound stupid, and I hate it when people do this, because it's kind of pompous, and I apologize right off the bat, but for, for anyone who's not here that might be listening to this on a podcast, I want to say this, to them, to the people that feel that the the story that I've just painted uh, doesn't include their departure, which might be some sort of fracture between me and them or the leadership and them, I want to beg them, and if this fits in your category at some point, I want to beg you to talk to us. A lot of times, we don't realize the infraction has actually happened. I want to listen to these stories. I'm I'm often quick to apologize. I deeply care about reconciliation, and I will do whatever I can do to reconcile the relationship that has been fractured amongst people. And if that's me, and if you feel that, then please reach out so that I can address those things. However it is that we got here to this space, we are here, a remnant in a funeral room. The symbolism is palpable. Richard Rohr describes our shadow self as the learned image of security and confidence that we portray in order to conceal our true self and the depth of our vulnerability. We want to protect our innermost truth of who we are in hopes of gaining acceptance amongst our peers. And I'll go ahead and tell you this, that my shadow self, it runs on the perceived success that I have. So this move from the sanctuary that seats 400 people 
to this funeral room with a smattering of chairs, it leaves me feeling a bit exposed. I would imagine that nearly every pastor at some point in their tenure, maybe even in the deep recesses of their minds, they entertain the thought that the church under their leadership would become a leading voice in the community, a beacon of light to the lost, a source of hope, and, oh, that beautiful and, and that it would become a megachurch. I think that pastors, at least at some point, have that idea. Um, This is going to condemn me in the minds of some, but Rob Bell was a formative figure for me. The way that he preached and communicated was uh, ways that I had never seen before, so I attempted to um, follow his ministry, I guess you could say, and in one of his earlier books, he retells the story of the first week in which they planted the church called Mars Hill. There was about 1,200 to 1,500 people there on week one, and he found himself in a closet like puking his brains out because he was so nervous. But the rest of us as pastors, as we're reading that, we're thinking, 1,200 people? Oh my goodness, where did they come from? How did he do that? The story behind that is he worked at a really big church, so he was like a named person before whatever. It's not a big deal, okay? So, but, but when, he, when he plants this church, there's so many people there And I think that many pastors begin to see that as part of of their story. I do want to go on a side note here for a second. Uh, It's interesting to me that usually megachurches are unable to capitalize on their voice because they appeal to so many people. And to be a leading voice requires, at least in my estimation, it requires offending a good number of your constituency at some point. So these churches, they typically don't speak out about gun violence in America. They don't reject white supremacy. They don't call out intolerance and hatred. They don't note the hypocrisy in our political commitments. They might perpetuate a toxic and nonsensical theology about loving the sinner but hating the sin after they write a paragraph that is cruel and dehumanizing as an example. I'll be the first to tell you that if these are the two options that we're dealing with, whether to become a voiceless megachurch with a lot of people or for me to serve alongside 25 or so passionate followers of Jesus who are unafraid and bold and will take risks, I will align myself with the latter every day of the week. As my doctoral supervisor used to say, you cannot be a prophet on the payroll, which seems to be true because Rob Bell got fired from his job. But, 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 but even now, I still wonder whether our influence as a people, whether it can increase, whether our progressive and inclusive message can appeal to those on the margins, to those who are not unspiritual, but who more and more claim religious unaffiliation as the most accurate description of their commitment. My shadow self still longs for success, for validation, for image. And maybe because this is the case, I have been engaged in a massive rethinking of what success looks like for me as an individual and for us as a church. I don't know, friends that have been here for longer than than an hour or so, I don't know if over the last 
six weeks or a few months when you have come here and we've sat in that massive sanctuary and there's been 24 or 25 of you. I don't know that as you leave, you thought, what's happening? Or I don't know if you felt deflated in those moments, but I begin to rethink what success is. Is it Facebook likes and shares? Is it podcast subscribers and SoundCloud listens? Is it t-shirts that say TRP in public or car stickers that we see at stoplights? Is it prestige and prominence? Is it visibility? Is it attendance? I wanna try something uh, tonight, and it might be a bit unconventional, but it's been meaningful for me to think about things in, in this way. You guys, the people that make up this community, past, present, and future, you are TRP's success. It's the lifelong Christians who are only now beginning to think about what following Jesus really means and what that might actually require of them when they leave this place. It's the traditional churchgoers who, through our honest approach to reading the Bible and our engagement in deep and much-needed theological conversations, who are beginning to see that the Christian faith is not as easy as the packaging that you maybe were given as a child. It's the unlikely diversity in this room Now, I've said a word a couple of times throughout this talk. It's a buzzword. It's a word that nobody really likes, but we use it to to help identify us on a map. I've used the word progressive a couple of times, but that doesn't speak of everyone in the room, nor would everyone in the room want to claim that of themselves. And the fact that we are all here together and that we love each other and we care for one another It speaks volumes to the oddity of this community and it screams success because when people who don't necessarily agree with every item of doctrine, when we can care for each other and love each other, that is so countercultural and revolutionary, it motivates me. Our success is embodied in the many, many college students who are no longer with us because they have gone on to graduate school, to serve on the mission field, to work with church plants, to be engaged in the public square, to teach cross-culturally. And everywhere they go, they carry with them the indelible and undeserved imprint of their maker, and even if faintly, the imprint of this community. It's those who, for many and varied reasons, are afraid to come here, to be with us in this physical space, yet still proudly claim us as their faith community, as kindred spirits, as their supporters and champions who will stand and have stood with them through the varied happenings of life. I don't know if this goes beyond the limits of which I can share stories, but there's a handful of individuals that you might not even know who contact the leadership on a somewhat normal basis to say, when I'm ready, you'll see me. The things going on in the culture and and all these things are, are something that are affecting them so greatly that they don't feel safe to broach the threshold of the church. But when we can still reach out and become family to them, I think that says something. It's the seekers who no longer occupy space on these seats, but because of our ministry, this is gonna sound weird, hold on. Because of our ministry, they've set off to assess their commitment to Christ, 
to rethink who Jesus is and how to serve him in a way that is both intellectually honest and faithful. I know that it seems odd to view this as success, but any time that we can encourage real, honest, authentic self-assessment where someone begins to ask themselves the question, who am I serving and why and how, I think that that's a step in the right direction. Our success, it includes the outsiders and the marginalized, whether in society or in the Christian community who have found TRP, and they've found in them a church home, a tribe, a people who are engaged, who are socially aware and theologically astute, and who are gracious and loving and inclusive. It's the members of the LGBT community also who serve with us, who worship with us, and who have invited us in to their lives and called us friends. Lastly, and I've wrestled with how to, how to say this, but after six years, we've seen people come and go, and I'd like to, to submit that our success also includes those who once committed to this local body, who once partnered with us and supported us, but who are no longer with us. I believe that our unique calling and our odd approach to ministry it will be unforgettable in their lives. We don't do altar calls, not as a form of principle or anything, but we just don't usually do that. But we do call people to align with Jesus in an authentic and costly way. We present people with opportunities to receive well-reasoned but often avoided readings of the Bible. Flashback to that bit about David and Elhanan, that sort of, that sort of thing. We offer people opportunities to love beyond our agreement or our disagreement, to grow, to advocate, to live in the midst of a diverse community. And when people decide to walk away, whether it be for theological disagreement or lack of an established program for kids or our size or the fact that we meet in a funeral room or much more substantially failed interaction with me or some of the leadership that requires conversation and my apologies, when they leave, it's not because we haven't fought for them. And when the difficulties of life begin to materialize, they know and oftentimes they do reach out to us to be family for them. I call this success because I believe that's what a church should be. If I might be so bold to submit this TRP, I believe that we are functioning as a church should function. So in many ways, I do believe that we can become a needed voice in this community. If you've looked around, not many churches are saying what we're saying. If you've looked around, not many churches are calling Christians to task in the way that we are calling Christians to task. If you've looked around, not many churches are imploring their people to love their adjectived neighbor, their gay neighbor, their Muslim neighbor, their, their neighbor on the margins and the outskirts to lay down their lives, to take risks, to live out their calling. If you've looked around, not many churches have gone beyond the encouragement of an individual and inner spirituality, which makes me want to scream, if it doesn't lead you to do something, to love someone, to put your neck out for them, then your spirituality is worthless. There's text all through the Old Testament where, where the Israelites are bringing their sacrifices and they're offering to God, and God says, get these sacrifices out of my face because the life that you are living does not go along with what you're bringing to me in this place. If our life does not look like and is in consonance with the things that we project in this space, then what 
are we doing? If you've looked around, perhaps we will begin to notice that maybe we as a church do have a message to proclaim. And while we might be in a funeral room, we're not dead yet. So I'm asking you that if any of this energizes you, then I would like to outgrow this weird little room again. And I'd like to do that by inviting our friends who won't set foot into a local church into this space with its really weird oil paintings of old dead white guys and its mismatched sacred furniture because we believe that, that they might resonate with our distinct mission and vision. Let's stop talking about the chairs at the table and fill them. And while we're at it, let's sing our songs like we mean it. We took a big step tonight toward that end because I don't think that it's just raising the voices, but I know that for many of you, you're beginning to sing what is deeply embedded in your life, a song of thanksgiving and praise to God. Let's experience the living Christ in communion like we need it. Let's live like we have the spirit of the living Christ surging through us. Let's learn, let's grow, let's be challenged, let's be transformed. And then let's take our message of hope to the streets because very few people are saying it out loud. Let's be prophets. We don't have to worry about the payroll. Let's speak the things that maybe other people will not or cannot speak. TRP, we might not be successful as most people would define it. As a pastor, I might not be the typical picture of success either, but I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of what we're attempting to accomplish. The fact that we have such a diverse ideological group, and yet we can rally around the cross and the empty tomb together for a greater mission, it's beautiful. So here's what we're proposing. We're gonna meet in this room for the month of June. We're already working on the plan for aesthetics, even though you guys have given me some verbal confirmation and some head nods that you don't seem to care about that. But I know that Tessa will internally combust if she can't do something with that cherubim in the back holding the apricots or the peaches or whatever sacred fruit that is. She's gonna lose her gourd if she can't put it somewhere. I'm still gonna argue that she goes right here with me overseeing but we'll, we'll see how that, how that goes. If at the end of the month we hate this place, we'll go back to the sanctuary. I might rope off even more and force us to be in the first two or three <laughs> pews, but we can go back if you guys want to. If at the end of the month we hate it in this room and we hate the sanctuary, then we can raise $50,000 and go find a place of our own or somebody can just donate that and speak that into existence. <laughs> Now at the outset, I said that this was a two-parter. You thought this was, this was it, right? I've been talking for a while, I know that. Stick with me. I say this often. This one's gonna be short. Uh-huh, I'm hearing the scoffs. Look, it's just that, it's just a few words, no big deal. See, when you write it, you're kinda bound by it, sort of, unless you just go over here, and then you can say whatever you want. I think that what I'm about to say from the book of John, visitors and new folks, we've been going through the Gospel of John uh, in a sermon series for the last 26 weeks. We're in chapter eight. <laughs> that says things. Uh, and I maybe could add that to the list of reasons why some people don't wanna come back. Um, 
But the majority of John chapter eight is, is Jesus interacting with the Pharisees. Uh, in the background, in the setting of this, we have, I've stepped away, brace yourselves. Uh, we have John chapter seven and John chapter eight going together with this odd story of the woman caught in adultery that seems to be wedged in between Jesus preaching at a Jewish festival called the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, when Jesus goes down to Jerusalem, this is a time of thanksgiving where people are celebrating the harvest and how God has provided for them. And if you take out that, that strange story of the woman caught in adultery, you know the one, it's where uh, people are there and, and they want to stone her. Jesus draws in the dirt and he says, you who was out, without, for, without sin, you cast the first stone and they all begin to leave and he has this nice little interchange with the woman. Um, if you remove that, then the teaching from chapter seven and chapter eight, it just seems to slide together and Jesus is, is referring to a lot of symbols that are present within the festival of tabernacles, whether it's the water that's being poured out on the altar and Jesus says, if anyone's thirsty, come to me and I will give you drink or the, the huge lamp stands that are behind and the four candles that are, that are glowing and Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He's interacting with the symbols of the time at this festival and as this is happening, he's interacting with the Pharisees who are super ticked at him and really want to kill him because of some of the claims that he is making. You could say that the conversation that Jesus is having with the religious leaders because of the fact that they want him to die, it's a failed communication. It's not going well. I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation with your friend at coffee and they, they leave wanting you dead. I would say that's a failed communication, but Jesus and the, the religious leaders are not seeing eye to eye. One New Testament scholar who's named N.T. Wright says, the chapter is about a man facing a mob. That's Jesus facing the religious leaders. Some of uh, the Jewish leaders and opinion formers have already decided that Jesus is leading Israel astray and ought to be killed. Several of them are ready to get on with the job immediately at the bit at the end of chapter eight when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. They start picking up stones to chuck them at him immediately, but it says that Jesus like evades their, their movements. There's all kinds of deep, beautiful theological stuff going on with Jesus saying, I am. Am that taps back to the self-revelation of God in Exodus chapter three at the burning bush when Moses is like, who do I tell them sent me? I am is sending you. And then Jesus saying before Abraham was, I am. It's the same play. Jesus more uh, in a substantial way is saying, I'm God, I'm sent by God, I'm God's kid in a, in a weird way. Like he's, he's making huge claims of himself, not only of preexistence, but this weird link that he has with God. The Father and the, and the Pharisees do not like this. So this story, according to Wright, is no gentle devotional discussion of deep personal religious truth set within a framework of civility and mutual respect. That is not happening. This is a man facing a crowd set upon lynching him, and he is bravely speaking up against their hypocrisy, the religious leader's hypocrisy. When you read this chapter, you can almost hear Jesus seething in his remarks. And you don't always get that from the red letters in your, in your nice NIV study Bibles, but you can, you can almost feel it. He's getting so frustrated with these people because they're supposed to know, and they don't. 
He's going to the churches of the time that are supposed to understand, and they have no clue who he is or what he's about, and he is frustrated. The religious leaders, they believe that they have it all figured out. They don't. They believe that they have all the right answers, but they don't, and Jesus is calling them on it. And it makes me wonder, if Jesus confronted our message as a church today, we can go small C, we can go capital C, we can go American church, we can, we can frame this in whatever way that we want. If Jesus confronted the church's message today, what would he say about it? Would he point out our hypocrisy? Would he point out some of the things that I outlined that some churches don't have a voice to say at risk of upsetting the constituency, and would he then say, why aren't you doing that? Or would he have a different message for us altogether? And likewise, if Jesus raised his voice today in our places of worship, if he showed up in our churches and preached, what would we say? in response to the things that he's asking us to do? Would we, like the Pharisees, protect our traditions? Would we protect our empires? Would we protect our denominations and our reading of the sacred text? Would we protect our theologies? Or would we allow King Jesus to move us beyond comfortability and into the direction that he is wanting us to go for the sake of the world. Yes, I know this was a weird one for you to come to for the first time, because it's a lot of homegrown internal stuff about why we're in this room when we haven't been in the past. And even like committed members, I don't know if this was more therapeutic for me than it was helpful for you, but I'm trying to process all of this, and each week I find myself leaving asking, what's happening? to us and to this community. I have not given up because the more that I'm engaged in the surrounding community, the more that I do think that there's a place for us. But as we begin to wonder about that, I don't want us to lose sight of something that's much more important, namely, what is it that Jesus is calling us to? Because that, friends, is a question that should be asked not just within a church context, but individually. What is Jesus calling you towards in your work, in your relationships, in your spheres of influence where you can can meet the needs of someone or speak truth into their lives in a way that he's urging you to, perhaps where you can begin to wrestle with some of your own deeply held theological commitments because you see the Spirit moving you in a new and fresh way. I don't know what that looks like for you, but I would urge us all to not be like these Pharisees who are entrenched in the traditions and allow ourselves to be open to the movement of the Spirit so that we can reach people for the risen and loving Jesus. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. 
you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.